Today's scripture reading comes from John 5, verses 1 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, church. If I haven't had the the pleasure of meeting you yet, uh, my name is Caleb. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community. And if we haven't met, I'd love to meet you and get to know your name after service today. Um, Would you please pray with me before we uh, jump into God's word this morning? Dear Lord, thank you for this gift and this pleasure that it is to, to gather together with other believers and to worship you and hear you speak to us through your word. God, I ask that you would empower me uh, to speak your word faithfully and effectively and clearly, um, but also, God, that empower all of us uh, through your Holy Spirit to hear what you would have to say to us, to hear more about who you are and how we should live in response. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So to start off, uh, I'd like you to imagine receiving everything you've wanted for 38 years, and then you go on living like nothing's changed. And actually, it's worse than that in our passage today, that this, this man who had been paralyzed for 38 years is healed, and not only does he, does he not respond with praise or gratitude or in faith to Jesus, but actually he turns against him, that he he switches from indifference to actually outright opposition, and he snitches on Jesus. He tells on Jesus to the religious authorities who are out to get him, also because he, him, because he is doing these things and, and healing on the Sabbath and violating uh, a religious tradition that's been passed down. And so to be honest, I really struggled with this passage this past week as I was kind of preparing to teach it, because I found how the, these characters responded to Jesus to seem so, um, so unbelievable, and even at times, like, contemptible. Like, it's hard to imagine what it would take for me in, in, initially to think, how could I respond so negatively to seeing a miracle before my very eyes? But then I, as I reflected more on this passage, and also on my, myself, my life as well, I started to find myself in the story and in some of these characters. 
And I think if we're all honest here today, I think we'll find a bit of ourselves in this story as well. Because you know, quite often, honestly, my heart posture towards God is, you know, great, thanks for the things you've done for me in the past, but God, what have you done for me lately, right? Am I the only person here who can experience God's goodness and know that he's blessed me in many ways? And then I just turn around and find one area of my life that's not going the way I want it, and I can complain and grumble about that. Am I the only person here who can know that I've been completely forgiven by God, not because of anything I've done, but because of his grace and mercy. And I can think, yeah, I know that. That's not a big deal. And just totally not let myself experience the immense gift that being accepted as God's child, how, how, how amazing that actually is. So if you feel like me and you can kind of start to see yourself in that story, just know you're not alone in this. And actually, this is one of John's main themes that he uses throughout this, his entire gospel as he's telling the story of Jesus. So if you're just joining us today, up until Easter, we're going through the Gospel of John, and the first section of it, and we're exploring this idea of word made flesh. So what happens when God the Word becomes a human being in the person of Jesus? And what we find actually throughout John's Gospel, when the perfect loving God comes to earth and comes to his people, they don't want him. They actually hate him. They turn against him. And this is something that John observes in, his, in the first chapter in his introduction. He says in chapter 1, verses 11, that he, this is God, the word made flesh, came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So throughout John's gospel, there are stories of Jesus coming, demonstrating his love and compassion, and people not receiving that and rejecting that after experiencing it. And this culminates actually in Jesus' own crucifixion, being ultimately rejected by his people, as we will see at the end of, of, this, of this gospel. But also John has another purpose in re- recording these stories of Jesus' rejection. He wants to show us what a proper response Jesus is. And so at the end of the book, he says his purpose for writing this whole gospel. He says in chapter 20, verse 31, but these things, and this refers to miracles and signs that, that he has recorded throughout this gospel, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So if trusting Jesus as the Messiah, God's chosen one, the one in whom we're supposed to find life the way it's meant to be, if that is, is the right response for encountering Jesus, what we have in our passage today is how not to respond to Jesus. And I think, like I said, if we're honest, I think we'll find, um, we'll see some barriers, things that prevent us and hinder us from responding to authentic faith and trust in Jesus. And we're going to go through three, three reasons, three things that prevent us from from responding in faith and trust to Jesus. Then after we look at these three three things, and I'll name them as we go through, we're going to turn and see what the story can also tell us about God and his character in relation to our rejection of him. So as you turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, if you're not there already, or John chapter 5, sorry, uh, I want to give you a little bit of context for this passage we have. So Jesus, he's in Jerusalem for this feast, and he goes to a pool called Bethesda. Now Bethesda in Aramaic means house of mercy. And here Jesus does a great act of mercy and kindness, undeserved kindness, to this man who's been paralyzed for 38 years. Now, there's many, at this pool, there's many sick people who are like hanging around there, we're told, and we, we are not told explicitly why in John's gospel. You may see in your Bibles, there's a footnote where verse 4 should be that says that later manuscripts added a verse. So it was common knowledge at John's time that this pool was a place, there was a superstition or kind of a tradition around it, that occasionally an angel would touch this pool and when the water started moving around without any visible sign of wind or someone, t- or someone uh, moving it, 
they would think an angel had touched the pool, and so the first person to jump into the pool when it's, when it's being stirred up by an angel would be healed of whatever sickness they had. Now, John himself in his, his writing his gospel, he doesn't include that, probably because it's common knowledge at his time, but a later scribe, as a copying, adds this in as an explanatory note to help us understand it better, but that's why it's in the footnote in your Bibles. But so can, can you imagine with me what it must be like for this man to live in this place for 38 years, right? To be living around this pool, constantly watching the water for any kind of motion of it moving around, to then be ready to jump in and be the first one and beat everyone else to get in there first. I don't know if you've played like musical chairs. If you've ever played that game, you know that, that feeling of anxious anticipation, waiting for the music to stop to grab your chair. But imagine playing that game for 38 years straight. What that would do to your heart and your soul of constantly watching and waiting for this water to be turned so that you could be the first one to jump in and be healed. What sort of bitterness and, and, and jealousy would just naturally arise in that context, do you think, when everyone's in that competition to see who will be the one to get there first. Already people who are excluded and marginalized from society, but having to live in this area, waiting for maybe the slim chance they could beat out everyone else and get healed. But in this context, Jesus shows up, sees all these people waiting to be healed, and he picks out one person, one man, knowing he's been there already a long time and seeing him, he makes him an offer that he's been waiting for his entire life. Do you want to be healed? The paralyzed man right, doesn't understand that Jesus is someone who could just heal him with a word and instead responds that, you know, actually, I could be healed on my own terms, but I just need a little help. Do you see that? He says, yeah, I'm here, right? Imagining he's on the edge of the pool. I'm in a good spot on my mat, and I just need someone to, like, give me a little push. As soon as the water, water is turned, and Jesus, could you be that person to help me a little bit? Now, there's some irony going on here that John's, in John's, like, gospel, because we, the readers, we just read a story last week of Jesus healing a Roman's official son with just a word from a distance. So we know Jesus could heal this man just by speaking it. This man has no idea and is approaching Jesus as someone else who might just help him. And that's where we find our, our first barrier to encountering Jesus and, and, to, and to responding to Jesus in faith and trust for who he is. And that's this. We look for a helper rather than the healer. And I'll say that again, we're looking for a helper rather than the healer. See, Jesus asks this paralyzed man if he wants to be healed, and he responds and says, yeah, I could use some help, you know, right? Completely missing that Jesus has the power to save him entirely of his own uh, initiative and effort and power. And this mindset, I think, is one that so many of us have, that I have everything planned out and put together in my life. I have a, maybe have a little bit of lack here or there, and I just need Jesus or someone else to come in and be that extra little push to get me over the finish line, to get me to 100%. But besides that, I'm, I'm pretty much good and okay. But we're not able to earn God's favor, to live the way God intends, to, have, to find a meaningful and successful and, and satisfactory life just by getting Jesus or anyone else for that matter to come in and just bless our efforts, to be that little nudge over the finish line. The problem is much worse than we think, right? In scripture, the images that scripture uses to describe the work of salvation that God does in our lives, right? It's like dead people being brought back to life, is uh, captives being set free, is lost people being found, and this passage is a paralyzed man for 38 years being able to stand up and walk, right? All of those are images of God's grace and mercy that only are made possible through his initiative and through his grace. 
And, but this, this is hard to receive or hard to properly understand. It just goes against our pride. Like his, God's mercy offends our pride. And it goes against our cultural mindset of having to earn everything in our lives. You know, a few years ago, I had to have surgery to remove a growth on my lower back. And if you're squeamish, just, just, just bear with me for a little bit. But I'll tell you, when I went to have surgery, I went to the, the surgeon's office to prepare for the surgery. I'll tell you what I did not do. I did not say, hey, you know, I got this little growth in my back. Listen up, doc. I actually need a little help getting it out. If you could just hold a mirror around my back and like kind of, because I can't see back there, but I'll follow your scalpel. You just hold the mirror. I'll just cut it out for me. I just need a little help getting this, this growth out. No, of course I didn't respond that way. Because, you know, what I did, the only thing I did, actually, was just go in and lay on the bed. They put me under. They wheeled me into the OR room, flipped me over, cut the, cut the growth out, sutured me back up, and I woke up later. All this happened while I was unconscious. Because I didn't need a helper with that growth in my back. I needed a healer. And I needed to have the humility to recognize and name that I, I am not able to do this on my own. I don't really need a little help. I need a complete and total healer to do this while I'm unconscious and to step in and do something that I can't do for myself. And it takes humility to recognize that. And in the same way, we can often uh, fail and we can often fail to go to Jesus as someone who has the spiritual resources and power to be the one to save us and to deliver us and heal us fully. And we have to be humble enough to recognize our need for a savior. Now related to this, another way we fail to properly respond to Jesus is that we look for him to fit our expectations rather than adjusting our expectations to fit him. And we see this throughout the story. So after this man is healed by Jesus just saying the word, um, how does does he respond to this healing? In verse nine, it says, and at once the man was healed and he he took up his bed and walked. All right, hold up. He just gets everything he's been waiting for for 38 years, and, his res- and there's no mention of praise, of gratitude in his response. He just gets up his, get, picks up his bed and walks away and doesn't even bother to get Jesus' name, the person who just healed him. Now, wh- why, why is that the case? Right? It says later that Jesus had withdrawn, so you could think, oh, maybe he's, he's so overjoyed and excited about being able to stand, he just kind of forgets Jesus is there. But you would think if he was actually so happy and so grateful to Jesus, when he met Jesus later at the temple, he would show some appreciation or gratitude then. But he doesn't, and he gets mad at Jesus and turns him into the authorities. No, it seems to me that he was shocked at being healed in a way that differed so greatly from how he expected to be healed. Just think about that. Think about living 38 years by that pool, waiting, and maybe daydreaming about the day you'd finally be the one to jump in the water first. And you'd be able to be proud of that, that you beat everyone else in that group and you were the one who made it first and got healed because of your own efforts. And then along comes this guy, you don't even know his name, and just pull, picks you out of the crowd because you haven't done, you haven't done anything to deserve this and he just heals you. What, what a big shock to his mind and to his soul that must be. And so I'm, I'm sure still reeling from that experience, he picks up his mat, trying to figure out his world has just been turned upside down and totally changed. But he's walking with this mat, and he runs into some, a group of religious leaders who get upset at him for, for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. Now, you have to know that in Israel at this time, one of the ten main commandments or rules was that you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Now, this was created as a, as a gift, as a, as a law, as a gift by God for the Jewish people who had come out of slavery and been, had been oppressed by the Egyptians and been working every day as slaves. And he's telling them, no, you're going to have one day off every week 
to rest and rejuvenate and worship your God, and that will kind of retrain you and reshape you. But the people have taken something that was given to them as a good gift, and through generations of kind of complex legal arguing and religious scholars kind of working on this, they, have, they felt they had to clearly define what counted as work and what wasn't work. And so they, a, a consensus came about during Jesus' time that to carry an object from one domain to another, this is going to sound very legalese, but to carry a domain from one object to another counts as work. And so what that means practically is you can rearrange the furniture in your own house, a little home remodeling, redecorating, but you can't go furniture shopping. You can't go to a store, buy furniture, and bring it home on the Sabbath. So this man is breaking the Sabbath law because he's carrying his mat from one place to another. And the Pharisees get really upset, and religious leaders get really upset at him for doing that. Um, and, and he responds in, in verse 11. He says, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They, these are the Jewish leaders, asked him, who is the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, this is wild. These religious leaders have just seen a miracle happen before their eyes, a man who's been paralyzed 38 years, be able to stand and walk. And they're more concerned with their religious, cultural tradition and expectation being violated. They're not able to praise God for the good work he has done right before them. If it was up to these religious people, they would have preferred that this man was still lying on the mat, uh, paralyzed, than standing on his own two feet, carrying his mat. Their implicit cultural expectation prevents them from responding in faith to Jesus and recognizing the good thing that he's doing through healing this man. But after Jesus finds right, that this man has been healed, later on in the temple, he tells him, he reveals who he is to him. He tells him, you've been made well, but stop sitting so that nothing worse may happen to you. This kind of ticks off that man. And so then he runs back to the religious leaders. His response has shifted from indifference to opposition. And he tells on Jesus, he tattles on Jesus and tells, says, he was the one who made me well and told me to walk, knowing that they were coming to him and upset for him breaking the Sabbath. So even after knowing who Jesus is and experiencing this unmerited, gracious gift of mercy and healing from him, this man still turns over Jesus to the authorities. And that's because he is more afraid of his own religious authorities, who his culture says has a voice of authority and should be respected, than Jesus' authority. And he values his cultural religious leaders more than Jesus as a leader. But Jesus responds to this in, in verse 6. He says, or in verse 6 explains further how um, they were opposing him. In verse 16, and this is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, real quick, when, when, when John, the gospel writer, uses this term, the Jews, he does not referring to all ethnically Jewish people. Because that wouldn't make sense, because John's Jewish, Jesus is Jewish, everyone in the story is Jewish. But when he uses the term the Jews, he's speaking about the Jewish religious leaders who are acting as like a representatives for all the Jewish people um, to Jesus and how they were deeply opposed to him. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. So here Jesus is making a bold claim that he is equal with God. And this statement about his equality with God, about how they can do, the, they're able to do the same things, it's going to impact more for us in the next two weeks as we go through the rest of John chapter five, but just real quick, Jesus is kind of tapping into this, this um, conclusion that the rabbis of his day had come to around the Sabbath, because they all knew that God still upholds the universe and still works in that sense on the seventh day, but he doesn't sin. And they said the reason he's able to do that is because the whole universe 
is God's domain, right? God can rearrange the furniture in his own house on the Sabbath, just like we can, and he doesn't have to break, break the Sabbath law. And Jesus says, right, we agree that God doesn't break the Sabbath when he works on the Sabbath and continues to do the work of creation and uh, upholding and providence of, of the world. And even so, as, as he is my father, since I have a unique relationship and equality with him, I'm able to work as well. And this, as we will see through the rest of the chapter, this infuriates the religious leaders. It, it baffles their expectations of who God is, and they can't accept it. And we'll, we'll unpack that more over the next few weeks. But both the paralyzed man, the Pharisees, and even you and I can so often miss and not see who Jesus is and the good work that God is doing through him because of expectations that we have that aren't being met. This happens in many other areas in our lives as well. So this, this past summer, uh, if you don't know, I grew up in Rwanda. And my wife Sarah and I, we were visiting where I grew up, kind of showing her around. And one day, our tour guide told us that he was going to take us to have a hot spring spa and massage experience. And it was only $15. So I'm getting super excited. And I just start, and I don't even have explicit expectations, but I have, you know, in my, in my mind, a mental picture. And I mean, when I say that word, hot spring spa experience and massage, what comes to your mind? What do you think about? Right, I'll tell you my kind of just implicit image. I think of a building with walls and, cement and floors and a roof. I think of changing rooms with like doors that lock. I think of private rooms where you have them for your massage with my wife and I in there and our masseuses. And also thinking, you know, our masseuses are going to have like name tags or at least like a uniform so I know that they work there. Maybe, you know, cucumber slices or relaxing music playing. You're on and on and on. That's, that's what I'm picturing in my head. <laughs> but we show up to this hot spring spa experience. And I have a, have a, have a picture, here, picture here for what, what it looks like. Um, so this, this is it. This is the whole place, right? It's right here. So there's no, there's no building. There's no walls. Um, the changing room, you can't see it, but it's like that same flimsy bamboo in the corner where you change um, into, your, into your swimsuit for. And you see those benches, those two benches there. That's for an audience, for your hot spring spa and massage experience. <laughs> there are no joke, like little old ladies when you walk in who are just sitting there watching these good-looking young men just lounge in the hot tub. I mean, you do what you gotta do, but I was feeling so uncomfortable, <laughs> just like completely like not having this. And like, yeah, she's not feeling great. My wife, Sarah, though, is like, okay, like I'm in a new country, I'm a new culture, I'm just gonna go with the flow. And I, I keep asking her, hey, are you, are you okay, are you okay? And she's oh, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine, that's great. And so the entire time we're having our whole massage experience, I'm just like uncomfortable, frustrated my expectations are not being met, worried that maybe Sarah isn't having a good time. Afterwards, we're just reflecting about this. And I'm like, uh, and she, she lets me know that, yeah, she enjoyed it. She realized, hey, this is a different culture. This is a different country. I'm just going to enjoy it for what it is. And I realized that I missed out on probably what was the best experience that we had that entire trip, like objectively, for $15 having a full, yeah, <laughs> the deal, a full body massage. We had this exfoliating like clay kind of rubbed all over our body to cleanse our skin, like these local medicinal herbs put all over us. Then we got a lounge in these like real hot spring hot tubs that they have made there. Like objectively the most pampered I will ever be for the rest of my life. And I still like had a terrible time while I was doing it because of my expectations. So both Sarah and I had the exact same experience objectively, but our response to it was completely different. In the same way in the story, right? This paralyzed man and the Pharisees experience objectively the same gift of healing and the same miracle that many others in John's gospel have also experienced. But they respond in a different way, partially because of the expectations that they bring to that experience. And you and I can still do the same thing all too often. 
I know God has blessed me in so many ways with a great job, housing, family and friends. I live a standard of life that's by no means extravagant for American culture, but compared to most of the world, compared to most people in history and living today, uh, they would love to live the lifestyle that I'm living. At the same time, I can turn around and grumble and complain about the smallest things that don't go my way. And I can know that God has been faithful to me in the past, but when something, some difficulty comes, I can forget about that and think, God, you know, what have you done for me lately? What, what are you doing right now that I can point to? I have such a short-term memory loss around that. And also, I can forget the truth that God and miss the reality that God has forgiven me of all my sins, past, present, and future. And I know if you've been here in church a long time and like me, you grew up in Christianity, just think, just, it, it, we take that for granted so much. We think, yada, 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 oh, of course God loves me. Of course he would. And we miss the reality of God's immense grace for us in bringing us as people who were against him and opposed him and bringing us back into his family. And we look for God to meet our expectations and we rather than adjusting our expectations to meet him. And that's why we need to read scripture and constantly let God's word reframe our expectations. But it's not just enough to read scripture like alone by yourself because then we're just gonna reimpose our own biases on that scripture like the Pharisees were doing. We have to do it in community with other people, but not just any community. That's why belonging to a diverse community, a community of people of different ages, different ethnicities, different cultural backgrounds, different genders, life stages is so important. Because if I'm around people that just look like me all the time, we're just gonna be constantly reinforcing our same cultural expectations on one another of who God is and how he works. And so diversity and belonging to a diverse community and, and valuing and loving that in a thoughtful and biblical way, it's not just like a pet project or a hobby that some people have, uh, or some Christians can have and some Christians don't need to have. But that's so important for us as a community because otherwise we're gonna miss the immensity of who God is and, and, and constrain him to our own cultural box and our own expectations. We have to let him, through other people and through the scriptures, recalibrate our expectations of who he is. So in addition, so those two reasons, first, where we look for a helper instead of a healer. Second, we look um, for God to meet our expectations rather than adjust our expectations to meet him. And third, this, this one comes out of those two. We look for affirmation instead of accountability. So in verse 14, Jesus finds this man. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So Jesus finds him again, a second time, like another act of his mercy and initiative, seeking him out. He didn't have to, but he's wanted to, to interact with him again. And he tells him, hey, it's not enough for you to be physically made well. You need to be living differently. Otherwise, something worse than your paralysis will happen to you. Now, we don't know, Jesus doesn't explicitly say that the paralysis or that the illness was a result of his sin. But what he does say is, you need to change how you're living going forward. Or something worse, probably likely a reference to the final judgment day when Jesus will judge all people for what they have done. Something worse then will happen to you. But all we know as well, this this upsets this man and he immediately runs off the tattle on Jesus to the Pharisees knowing that they are are looking for Jesus to punish him. And this, this turns his response to Jesus from indifference to outright opposition. In a similar way, I found, I think one of the greatest barriers to the gospel and to authentic faith and trust in Jesus, it's not the intellectual um, plausibility of, of, of the gospel. People can, can rationalize anything they want to believe, but it's actually the moral demands of the gospel. It's what following Jesus, how that would affect your life. 
and change everything. Because if Jesus, right, is, is the Messiah, if he's God's son, everything changes. How your finances, how you spend your money is going to have to change. How you live out your sexuality is going to have to change. How you uh, relate to other people, how you relate to your friends and family, how you treat others, how you show up in your workplace, how you pursue justice and care for the poor, all of that has to change to become in line with who Jesus is and the way he created us to be. And it might seem harsh and unloving for Jesus to tell this paralyzed man, hey, like, you need to stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. It's easy to read that in a really harsh way. But, you know, it's actually the most loving thing for Jesus to do and Jesus to tell him. So imagine you take your car to the mechanic, and it's a really trustworthy mechanic, but he finds a really bad gas leak in the engine. It, would it be loving for that mechanic to say, you know what, like your car's fine, just get on the road and keep driving, even when it's a gas leak that could potentially cause your engine to burst in flames and then cause you to also burn up in flames in your car, right? Like, even though it's incredibly inconvenient truth and it's going to cost you a lot of time and money to have him fix that car, uh, it's a, the most loving thing for him to do because otherwise you're going to be driving, burn alive, and die in that car. <laughs> and so in the same way, right, Jesus is telling us, man, if you keep living the way you're living, and God's telling us too today, if you keep living the way you're doing, not coming to me to trust me as your savior, what, the way you're living is, is a way that is going to lead to your death. That I, I'm the author of life and know the way life's supposed to be, so you need to follow life and live life in accordance to the way I teach and the way I, um, the way I have wanted you to live. And this barrier is actually like an outcome of the previous two barriers, Right? So if, if Jesus is just a helper and not a healer, and we kind of meet him on like somewhat equal terms, even if he's like slightly above us, we're able to like barter or, like, or kind of bargain about where we're going to change and where we're not going to change, because we're pretty much equal. He's just helping us. But if Jesus is our Savior and has done everything to save us and to heal us and restore us, he's done it all, there's nothing he can't ask of us. As the hymn says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. There's no limit to what he can ask for us to do and change because he's, he's our healer and our savior, not a helper. And if Jesus is just another good moral teacher, like our you know, postmodern, post-Christian culture typically assumes and expects of Jesus, if he's just one good option among many, you can read his teachings and think, you know, I like Jesus here, but not here. And I can, you can pick and choose where you want to follow him. If you like what Jesus says about justice and about caring for the oppressed, but not what he says about personal morality, you can take that and leave the other. Or if, if it's the vice versa for you, you can flip that around. And you can choose where you want to follow him if he's just a good moral teacher as our culture expects. But if he is the Messiah, if he's God's son, the one in whom we see the way life is meant to be, there's nothing that of, of his teaching that we can leave aside, that we have to follow it all, and we should want to follow it all. So I, and as we reach kind of our end of our time together, I want you to reflect with me. Where are you at today? Where are you rejecting who Jesus is, or even just remaining indifferent? Do you look to Jesus as just a helper or the healer? Where are you looking for God to just bless what you're already doing in your life? Or just to be your nudge across the finish line? In what ways do you still need to recognize your complete need for him and live out that dependence on him? How are your implicit expectations preventing you from seeing Jesus for who he really is or praising him for the good work that he is doing in your life? What would it look like for you to respond more in gratitude and in praise for what God has done in your life? 
and remind yourself of God's gift of new, of new life in him within you? Where are you knowingly choosing to live in opposition to God, to reject his purposes for you? And, and to not live in ways that Jesus wants for you for your good. What a, con, a convenient and hard, but ultimately loving truth do you need to hear from Jesus today? Now, if you're, you're like me, and it could be easy to feel weighed down by all the ways that, and, and the different areas that we can reject or stand against or not respond properly to God, um, just know this that God's acceptance of us is greater than our rejection of Him. I'll say that again, God's acceptance of us is greater than our rejection of him. Because in John's gospel, as we'll see as we keep going through it throughout the summer and next year, and as we reach closer to Good Friday and Easter, we'll see people keep rejecting and rejecting God, but actually it's God's, it's the rejection of God and Jesus that God uses as the means to enable the acceptance, our acceptance as well. See, 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to his own people and his own people did not receive him. And it doesn't matter if it was first century Palestine or if it came at a different time, if it came to 21st century Kansas City, the result of a perfectly loving God encountering sinful fallen human beings would ultimately lead to his rejection. But God chose to do that. He chose to experience that unjust rejection and punishment from his people. And, and, and through this rejection, Jesus, as an innocent man, was handed over to the Roman authorities in the place of a known criminal, Barabbas, who was set free. And, and he experienced the rejection and punishment, an unjust rejection, rejection and punishment that is the rejection and punishment that all of us deserve for our turning against God and our rejection of him. But God takes that upon himself and he dies as an innocent man in our place so that we could be accepted as innocent in God's eyes. And it's only through this, through his death, that we're able, by God's Holy Spirit, to trust him as our savior and true healer. We can let him renew our mind so that we can have a proper expectation around who he is and how he works. And we can accept his accountability as a gift that leads us ultimately to what's best for us, that leads us to live life the way it's meant to be. And it's only possible through Jesus' death on our behalf that we're going to celebrate today and, and, and right now in a few minutes as we take Holy Communion together like we do every week. And every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, God is reminding us of how he showed his love to us through his son's death on the cross, through Jesus' body that was broken by those who rejected God, broken by us. It's also broken for us. And it's the means through which God accepts us and, and, and accepts us back into a restored relationship with him.